0: Welcome inside the Legends Legends Lounge, Lounge, where baseball VIPs are hanging out and talking about their life in the game. Alana, we have a friend this week. They're all friends, technically, but you know what I'm saying. This is someone who's been in our family in terms of our work at MLB Network for a long time.
1: I love Mike Lowell. He's always a great time. um, Always great, high energy. Uh, We share that Cuban connection. You two share the Miami connection. Um, A lot of commonality with the three of us. And uh, he's had an interesting path just as most big leaguers do.
0: And so I think there's two things you'll like about this as we bring Mike Lowell into the lounge. One is the fact that Clearly we're all friends, so it should be a comfortable conversation, but also we'll probably ask him some questions that we genuinely don't know the answer to. So that's good too. So let's all learn together. Mike Lowell, come on down. A winner and a friend entering the lounge 13 year big leaguer, Four-time All-Star, Gold Glover, Silver Slugger, World Series Rings, 2003 Marlins, World Series MVP and winner with the 2007 Boston Red Sox, Mikey Lowell in the lounge. And I tried to talk to our team about flying us into Miami, potentially, to maybe do this on a boat. (laughs) Uh, It was very unsuccessful. You know, we could have had the boat though. You've got the boat for it, but we couldn't uh, we couldn't here. handle the scheduling and the flights and all that. It's
2: ready for you guys. They could handle a couple of cameramen. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> how you doing though? How's life and, and how's life in your you know post-playing career? How much are you enjoying it all?
2: Um, it it's you know it was definitely a transition. I think for any player, it's a big transition. I think I, I think I went into my career knowing that it, when it was over. I would never find anything to replace, I don't know, the adrenaline and the excitement I get as a player. I, I think some guys think they'll find it. I, I knew I wasn't going to find it. You know, I, I play golf. I try to travel, and I enjoy all those things, but nothing compares to, for me, getting ready for a game and, and you know, playing in front of people. That, that adrenaline was, was something good. I, I, you know, but I do find joy in other things. You know, I had a summer for the first time in 20 years. You know, when I first retired, I was like, wow, this is pretty good. You know, I kind of like this. So um, I've been able to enjoy my kids a lot. You know, I have uh, my daughter's a junior now in college and my son's a, a senior in high school. So I've been able to kind of be there, especially these last, you know, it's been, it's incredible. It's been 10, 12 years since I've been retired. So to I really see them grow. I mean, there's a little bit of regret on their end. They're like, we wish we were older and we were playing. We could have gone and hang out more with the players. I'm like, well, you actually hung out with the players. You were just too young to really know what's going on.
1: When you decided that you were done, or when the game dictated that you were done, Mike, did you worry about, and you touched upon it a little bit right here, but did you worry about how difficult it was going to be to replace that adrenaline, and the routine in which you became accustomed to your entire career?
2: Uh, A little bit, yeah. Um, I didn't know if I was just going to be bored out of my mind, you know. (laughs) I thought I wanted to get back on the field right away, you know, I, I was thinking to myself, maybe I'll take a year off because Alana, I really like being on the field. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I enjoy the grind. I think I appreciate like when guys turn in careers year after year. You know, we have guys in the game now, that are so young and so polished that it really amazes me, you know. And and, and it's just something that's that's very different. I, I, I appreciate guys trying to get better each year. So I thought that was the case. I think I got the bug of two things. I enjoyed the freedom. MLB Network was a huge thing for me because I felt like I could be on maybe like a part-time basis and still in the loop. So that was a really nice thing for me. And honestly, the, every staff member now, I think it's a 12-month-a-year job. You know, yeah. it's, that, it's that complicated. It's that, that's the requirement. And um, I don't know, I'm, not that I'm turned off by it. I just think it's the nature of the business that you're in but there's no free time. You know, and I feel like I, I don't know, I feel like I I earned a little bit of free time and I I got a taste of it and now I'm enjoying it. So um I'm not, I'm not, I have no regrets with what I'm doing. I just you're right, I wasn't sure, but yes, my golf game's a little better. And I like you know, and I like games, but that that you know for me it was running out stretching before a game and you, everyone's all excited and it's like the excitement of right before a game what's going to happen for me that was the best reality tv in the world you know I couldn't I can't replace it and I knew what I couldn't and I was I was okay with it
0: so if I own a team and I call you and I'm like hey manager job you ain't <laughs> you're, you're like no I, I'm not in you know and I've been asked by a couple teams on different jobs and you know I'm
2: you know, I, I leaned out my dad a lot in my career. You know, I like to talk shop and mm-hmm. I would tell him, I'm like, I don't know if I'm closing the door, you know, because there were some real good people and good organizations that reached out. You know, I don't know if I would have gotten a job, but that they were interested in having me interview. And, you know, there was, I was a little bit at a crossroads, you know, I didn't know, is this something that I'm, I'm neglecting and I shouldn't. So um, there's always that doubt. I think that's human nature, but overall, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied where, where things are right now.
1: Mike, you talked about your dad, and I know you've leaned heavily upon him um, in your career, but this is something I always found interesting, and I didn't know this about you until recently. I know that you were born in Puerto Rico, but I've always called you Cubano, and you definitely identify more as a Cuban-American because you moved to Miami when you were just four years old. Tell me a little bit about that transition and just growing up um, in a Cuban-American household. And I ask you because I'm interested because I'm Cuban as well. So how did that, uh, just tell me a little bit more about your upbringing.
2: Well, my, you know, we'll go back one generation. My parents, you know, were 11 years old, each of them, and they were in Cuba. And when the Castro regime took over, they left to Puerto Rico. Okay. And, you know, Puerto Rico was a big safe haven for a lot of you know, Cubans that wanted to work because you got the U.S. protection, but you also have your native language. So it made the transition a lot easier. So my parents met later, you know, later, a little older and um, in Puerto Rico. And I'm one of four. My older brother and I were born in Puerto Rico. And then when my dad, you know, he's a dentist. So when he finally was offered a job where it's a little bit more stability, it was in Miami. And a lot of family members started making the trek from Puerto Rico to Miami, and I still have—I would say—I have some cousins, but the the vast majority are in Miami. So Christmas, Thanksgiving, like they fly to us when I said the whole the whole cavalry there. So, (laughs) but I spent all the summers as a kid um, in Puerto Rico. My grandparents were there, and they didn't move to Miami until I was probably I think twelve or thirteen. So it was it was a good amount of summers where. You know, it was summers and it was Christmas. I think one Christmas there, one Christmas here, a lot of New Year's. So I do have that attachment to being in Puerto Rico because it has such, such fond memories for me and family. And, and really as I get older, the, the benefit that Puerto Rico supplied, you know, my, my family on both sides. But my culture, you know, the the gist of my culture is Cuban, you know, and I don't think Lowell does any favors. I mean, we were on the way <laughs> by Lowell's German, but somehow a German ended up in Cuba. So we'll make it quick. Um, but yeah, uh, everything, you know, I, I spoke Spanish before I spoke English. You know, in my house and all the get-togethers, Spanish is spoken. Right. So yes. I'm very much entrenched into the Latin community, and I felt like, you know, going through the Miley system it really opened my eyes on some guys how. How it's teams do a great job now. Everyone has a lot of, you know, Spanish speaking coaches. But man, when I was in ball, a lot of these 18-year-old kids that signed from Venezuela, Dominican and Puerto Rico, like you get three days in a hotel. Yeah. And here, if you stay at the Ritz-Carlton or on a park bench, you're on your own after that. So you know, <laughs> I, I did have a soft spot. You know, in Greensboro, I had a 88 Honda Accord hatchback that was gold. And I took five guys to to the stadium and they were all Latin guys. And I was like, how would they have gone to the stadium if they didn't have a ride?
1: (laughs) They'd still be trying to get there. (laughs) Yeah,
2: you know, it was a big adjustment. But yeah, I, I felt like that was such a huge advantage for me as a player because I felt like I could relate to both sides. You know, I went to college in the States. All my education was in the States. So I got that component. But I feel like I understood a little bit some of these guys have gone through major sacrifices just to get to where they are. But I understood at least from, I guess, the position of being able to listen to them, you know, and see their stories because I couldn't imagine, you know, I tell a lot of guys that are in college now, what if your parents dropped you off in France right now and told you to go start playing soccer? Like that's a hard transition. So, you know, sometimes you need to have a little patience. So I'm mesmerized by the young, the young Latin guys that, you know, really learn the language, really endear themselves to the English speaking media, because I think you really see good personalities from all over the place.
0: And then what about baseball in South Florida growing up? And that includes playing with A Rod, right? I did. You know, we had,
2: I say we had a, a, a fantastic summer league team, which I don't know how we didn't win the championship because Ross Atkins <laughs> was one of our pitchers, GM of the Blue Jays. Juan Alvarez was another pitch of ours. He pitched. Parts of three years in the big leagues, he's now a national cross-checker, I think, on the southeast coast for the White Sox. Eli Marrero, who played in the big leagues about 10 years, was our starting catcher. A-Rod was at short. I was at second. And how we came in second place, I don't know, because we should <laughs> we should have won. But it, it's, you know, we, I think off that team, it was probably 14, 15 kids. I think seven went to D1 colleges. And, you know, it. Miami's like, you know, I put it with California and Texas, the place in Arizona where you can play year round, you see that if you can, you will. And I think nowadays everything's in academy, no matter what the sport is. Every sport is year round, which that might be a topic for another day. Um, But yeah, I, I enjoyed summer ball. I was around great coaches and I was around guys that ended up being real, real influential players in the game.
1: It doesn't have to be a topic for another day. What's your opinion of year round? It's interesting because I always wonder from guys that played in your era, um, also guys before and now what your opinion is on letting these kids be kids and and play different sports and not wearing them out so soon. But I know there's so much pressure and I feel like kids are starting to get recruited and signed at, you know, two years old. So I can see both sides of it.
2: Yeah. I have a major conflict on, on a lot of different fronts for me i found a lot of comfort knowing that the seasons ended. Like when I was a kid, we had 12 games of baseball. If it rained on a Saturday, I would cry because there was no makeup day. So now <laughs> you're down to 11, but the season ended. And then you went to go play basketball and then you could play football. And then I played soccer and volleyball. And I thought I even played tennis in the summer, you know, and I don't know that playing tennis Made me a better third baseman, but I guarantee it didn't hurt, you know, exactly. and I felt like he became an athlete on the flip side. I've seen it with my own son, you know, he was playing basketball and baseball, basically up to his freshman year. And then if you do both, you almost are left behind because the kids nowadays kids are so advanced that if you miss out on six to nine months, you might feel like you're kind of left in the dust. And I, I don't know, I don't know, the, I don't know the solution, but I do know that if a kid is capable of playing in multiple sports, I always endorse it because mm-hmm. unless you live in a place where there is no contact from a scouting situation or a college recruiter, if you're good, they're going to find you, you yeah. know, I think an added bonus is if you're a real good baseball player and they say, Hey, this guy plays on the basketball team or he's the wide receiver on the football team that helps. You know, there's no way yeah. it can hurt, you know, and I, and I don't know. My other pet peeve is the participation awards. You know, I, oh, yeah. I my, my little league was, there was probably six or eight teams. Everyone was forced to go to the end of your banquet. The first place team got a trophy about this big. The second place team got a trophy about that big and no one else got a trophy. Yeah. So when you got a trophy, it was fantastic. Yeah. You know, it felt like something, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll digress really quick. So my son was nine. And you're playing 10 U. So usually when you're in the nine-year-olds, you get your butt, kicks a little, your butt kicked a little because you know, some of the teams are the older kids and then you do the butt kicking when you're <laughs> ten. So the league he was playing, in had two tiers, ten, 10 teams. After about five or six games, they can see who are the better teams and who aren't. So what they do is the top five teams become the major league and the bottom five team become AAA. My son's team ended up being the sixth seed. So they were the best team of AAA. They go to the playoffs, only the bottom five teams. They get to the finals and lose. So they are technically the seventh best team out of 10. He got a trophy that was an extreme, you can't see it, this big, <laughs> seventh best. I told my wife, oh, my God, we're rewarding mediocrity. Yep. So my son comes back. He's nine. He has this huge trophy. I said, look, look at it. Enjoy it. That one doesn't go in your room you didn't earn that one. I'm sorry. Not seventh best. I'll give you up to third. We're not going to seven. So, so, and that's a lot of it. And, you know, and then when these kids get a little older, they're disappointed because they get cut from their high school team. But I was on, I have 19 trophies
1: Yeah. and I yep. think
2: sometimes failure is a wonderful gift.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Michael Jordan got cut from his high school team. Let's remember that. You know what? Yeah. It's okay. And I'm with you. Everybody gets a trophy and that's kind of like the NBA. Everybody gets in too. Um, I do have to ask you a question. You were talking about you think playing tennis helped you. How could it not, especially with the footwork that you needed in tennis and as a third baseman, but when you were drafted originally, you decided to go to FIU and then you get drafted by the Yankees as a catcher. How did you make the transition from catcher to third base?
2: Well, and honestly, I never caught since Little League, so I was Alana was a very late bloomer like. I tell people I didn't shave till like my sophomore year of college, and now I <laughs> twice, a day, twice a day. So it all caught up. Um, so I played second base in high school and college. All three years I played second base. I always had a good arm. I didn't have a lot of power. You know, the most home runs I hit was six, but I was tall, you know, and I kind of grew into my frame at about 20 when a lot of my contemporaries, you know, teammates were like 16, 17, and they looked like men. And I was like, oh my God, what is this? So when the Yankees called, they said, would you be interested in catching? And I said, yes, because I figured I always hit for average. I hit a lot of doubles. And I said, man, as a catcher, there's one position where maybe if you're smart, I had a good arm, if I could learn how to handle a pitching staff and a good hitter, maybe that's a guy that can really go through a system. Now, mind you, I'm a 20th round pick. So I'm looking at every angle to see how I, can, how I can go there. So when I signed, Mark Newman was the player development uh, director for the Yankees. And ironically, Rob Thompson, the manager of the Phillies, really? was my first manager at Omianto. And they told me I was going to catch bullpens, maybe even stand there for batting practice. And then when I was ready, they were going to put me in a game. I was all for it. And uh, but for now, you are going to play third base. And of all the positions in my life, the only one I never played in one inning ever, Little League, high school, college was third base. Ah. Never. So I was like, OK, this is temporary. No problem. And uh, after about two weeks, I don't even have a catcher's man. I don't have shin guards. I don't have anything. So I went up to Rob. You know, I went up to Thompson. And I'm like, hey, Tom, is there anything to do with this catching thing? And he says, well, Mark Newman says he likes your hands. And he goes, you have plenty of arm strength. He wants to leave you at third. And honestly, I was very – I was disappointed because you got to hit for power. And that year I hit one home run. So I was like, oh, my goodness, man, this is, this is going to be tough for me. But then, you know, the beauty of the minor leagues is – I went back to school that offseason, but you have six months to work out. And, and, you know, you see guys, and remember, this is the steroid era where you see guys come back and they're 30, 40 pounds bigger. I gained 11 pounds, and I felt like I was a very different type of person. So that next year I hit well in Greensboro, you know, hit about eight home runs, and then I worked with Gary Dembo in instruction. I wasn't even invited to instructionally. You know, 20th rounders don't go to the prospect camps, But after that first full season, I went with him, and he was – he was so instrumental for me. He really understood my swing and the, and the adjustments I needed to do to make it more efficient. And I felt like I was always a listener and I, I, I was coachable. And I just, I was so maniacal on just honing in on what he told me. And I was, it was teamwork and toss. And the Meyer leagues, you don't come ready to prep yourself to kind of graduate, to be ready for opening day. Like you come in ready because yeah. you got to impress. And I had a real good spring and I made the double A team and that year I hit 32 home runs and then I became a prospect, you know, but it was, it was a combination of understanding your strengths. You know, I filled into my frame and then I was like, oh yeah, third base. Great. Because <laughs> you know, I've had two hip surgeries. I don't know if the catching thing would have worked out. So oh, man. You know, the plan, you know, everything works out for the best. So I actually, it was a big adjustment, but I actually really
0: enjoy playing third base. I really did. So, kids, whatever position you really want to play, don't practice it at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the message. Point.
2: For a lot of parents say, I can't believe they don't have my kid at shortstop. And I say, well, by the way, your kid's not better than the shortstop right now. But I never played third base, you know, and it could, there's value in that. You never know where you're going to end up. You really don't.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So then, okay, let's talk Yanks for a moment, because, of course, you end up being, you know, historic with the Red Sox. In 1998, first up, did you get a World Series ring? Because you I were did. a part I of did. that. You yeah, know, you I, I,
2: yeah, you know, I played. I was a September call-up, and that team—they were so good that I think the first, my first day in the big leagues, it was kind of like the Dodgers. Now they clinched the division like September 8th. It was a joke. So everyone's <laughs> spraying champagne. I don't even have an at bat in the big leagues, and everyone's <laughs> spraying champagne. So I got in about eight games. I think I started three or four of them. Um, and George Steinbrenner, he always had the approach. If you played one day in the big leagues for the Yankees, you deserve, you are contributing force. So I do have a Yankee ring. I don't say I, well, sometimes I say without those eight games that I played in September, I don't think they could have won the World Series. But <laughs> I think they were, they were just fine, but I do have a ring. I have a, I have a ring it's uh it's actually pretty cool to say that. Well, I you haven't.
1: got a you got a single every other at bat cuz you had uh you played in eight games. You were 4 for 15 basically and all all four okay. were, all four were singles. So there you go.
0: You never know. Hey, yeah, you never know now, what could have happened.
2: <laughs> I, t- I tell my claim to fame with the Yankees was um I pinch ran for Tim Raines. And people <laughs> know I was not I was not fast and I always tell Rock Raines <laughs> that you were pinch hit
0: for. I mean pinch <laughs> run for. By me. We were blowing someone out. They wanted
1: to get him (laughs) him off his legs. That's
0: all right. So it's three times. It's really, he's got three rings. So we might have to go edit the the intro, but I I said two. But, you know, this is a good good little caveat here to learn about. But um, with the Yanks, did you feel, because you were so young, of course, and, and you're just entering, did you feel... Did it feel weird? Did it feel cool? Like, what was the experience? Like, you're with some really legendary players, and that's a, a dynasty run for them when you get up there. But you're also, I'm sure, focused on the personal goal of, I want to stay up here and be a long-time big leaguer, even though you're part of a team that's like, win at all costs because we're a powerhouse. It was it was a lot of different
2: things, Scotty. And first of all, I think I was
0: I was blessed because
2: the Yankees always spoke to us as minor leaguers of when you get to the big leagues, not if. And I always found that, you know, uh, very powerful. And as a 20th rounder, I was treated, I don't think my leash was as long as maybe a first rounder, but I never received less reps. I never received less attention if you wanted to work. And, you know, and I don't know if that it's the only organization minorly wise that I knew. And I felt like they treated me with, the utmost respect. So I had a, I had a very good experience going through the minor league system. I was at a crossroads when I got to the big leagues because Scott Brocious was the third base and they brought him in basically just to play defense. And in 98, he has a monster year. And if you want to hear a really good story, the playoffs start and my agents are Sam and Seth Levinson and they talk to Brian Cashman and Brian to a certain degree says, the only way Mike is not our starting third baseman in 1999 is if we go to the World Series, win the World Series, and Scott Brochus wins. He the World.
1: MVP. <laughs> that, and that's that, exactly that. what happened. <laughs>
2: so I tell you, I give Ryan Cashman a lot of credit because he called me after in the offseason. He goes, I guarantee you, your minor league career is over. I've been in AAA a year and a half, and the Yankees notoriously, they're not going to bring up a young guy to sit on the bench. So if you're a prospect and your spot's being taken by someone who's playing every day, you stay in AAA. And I love the Yankees, but the the greatest AAA team is vastly inferior to the worst major league team, Mm -hmm. you know, in everything. Accommodations, pay, lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. That's pretty easily said. So I didn't know whether to believe Brian Cashman or not. You know, I was like, well, maybe he's just telling me something I want to hear. And I just didn't want to go back to AAA for, basically my third year you know i was 24 and i was like man you know if 25 if, is if in tripling i'm gonna go in maybe as a 26 year old now you know age is starting to be a factor but sure enough in february he traded me to the marlins for three pitchers and so if someone asked me about brian cashman he's always been a man of his word because he stuck to it and as a young guy you don't know what to expect so um i do i have a soft spot for brian cashman so when he does well i don't uh, i'm not i'm not that upset
1: Yeah. I mean, you can only ask for communication. I think that's what all players want is just respect and communication. So you get traded to the Marlins in February of 99. You don't play for the Yankees anymore after Scott Brocious goes off and, Absolutely has Cashman's uh, thoughts come true. Then you have some additional testing when you become a Marlin and and you find out that um, you have testicular cancer, what goes through a player's mind, especially a young player that spent, you know, at this point a cup of coffee in the big leagues. And now you're trying to make a name for yourself with Miami at the time, Florida.
2: Well, I was during our physical, you know, we all go to the physicals and, you know, they test you from head to toe and the biggest shock to me was that I didn't have any symptoms. You know? And, you know, they do your eyes, your throat, this, and you go see the internist. And he tells me, hey, look that way and cough and all this. And then he asked me, hey, um, have you ever had like, uh, did you get hit by a ball in you know, your groin region? I said, man, I think I remember if I got hit there. He's like, well, um, we're gonna just run an additional test. Maybe it's nothing. So I'm not thinking anything of it. And you know, I went to the hospital and they did x-rays and ultrasounds and all this. And basically he looks at me and he's like, well, I know you have testicular cancer. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? You know, worst case, best case scenario. I don't understand. And he's like, well, worst case scenario is you're going to probably have surgery within the next couple of days, chemo, and we'll see how far along it is. And my, my face dropped, you know, I had been married four months.
1: Mm.
2: I said, okay, what's best case scenario? And he goes, well, you're probably going to have surgery in, less, in a couple of days. And you'll probably have radiation and we hope you make a full recovery. This was in Fort Lauderdale. I was living in Miami. And I think I cried the whole drive back because I was like, what do I tell my parents? What do I tell my wife? What, what is going on? So I was just, you know, you're in a dark place because it it just hit like a ton of bricks. So, Um, but the Marlins treated me great. You know, the next day I went back to the hospital and the the doctor was going to do the surgery literally says to me hi Mike congratulations and I go excuse me and he goes I want to congratulate you I said I mean I don't know if this is funny to you but I'm not in I'm not in any laughing mood he goes look no matter how far progressed this is it's beatable so Mm -hmm. this is the one to get and it's crazy it's been this was 99 it's been 23 years and I still get choked up thinking about
1: it yeah
2: so I had surgery literally within two days. I had surgery and then um, there was, you know, concern of whether I could ever have kids Mm -hmm. and and all that goes to your mind. And, you know, you're in a delicate place and I hadn't proven myself in the big week. So, you know, I think quickly, one thing that helped me, you know, I had a lot of support and I didn't really, you know, I was, I was upset because of the timing and it's only normal to be like, why, why now? I don't understand, you know, but I think when I got to a point after, I did radiation, which is a whole nother battle. I don't want to wish that on my worst enemy. Um, I just didn't want the cancer that's beatable to be the reason why I didn't have a big league career. Mm -hmm. So I think that really motivated me. And, you know, everyone says, oh, you can help so many people. In that time, I don't think you're in the mindset of how many people can I help. That definitely came afterwards. But I was just like, is this going to define me? I go, this can't define me. You know, this is what... I wanted to do since I was six years old and I finally really had the chance because with the Marlins, I was going to play,
0: right. you know,
2: so it was, you know, I tipped my hat to Dave Dombrowski and John Henry was the, the owner at the time. and They gave me the longest leash I could ask, you know, and they were just
1: really, really good to me. That's great.
0: Did you ever ask or wonder hey what if i'm not in the role that i'm in as a baseball player getting physicals like did you ever ask the doctors hey what if i didn't catch this because if you're not symptomatic how do you know you have a problem
2: well they i mean they told me that sooner or later i would have had a lot of pain okay but the problem with that pain it would have been much more progressed Mm -hmm. and their whole the whole goal i remember them saying lymph nodes lymph nodes it can't be in your lymph system because then now you're in a really uphill battle And, you know, at first I was kind of upset at the doctor that found it. And now I'm so great, you know, you realize that he might have saved a lot of heartache for me. You know, like it was found so early that, you know, considering three weeks of radiation compared to maybe six months of chemotherapy, like I felt like it took me a good year and a half to get my strength back. And I think if it would have been something like chemotherapy, maybe it was, maybe it might've been two or three years. And I don't know where my career would have been. So it was, I think it was a big, a big deal.
1: So you joined the Marlins again in the winter of 99. And then really your breakout year was a couple of years later where you you drive in a billion runs. What what clicked for you? What made that year so special in 2001? Um, 2001, I think
2: I'm a big believer in, I think you need to have 45600 at bats to really understand what you do well. And that's why I say that these young guys really impress me because they're coming in polished and taking their game to someone else. So, I felt like the minor leagues was the same way. I played basically a year and a half and then I exploded. And then in the big leagues it was kind of a year and a half and then I felt like I found that consistency and I, and I think it's trial and error. You know, I yeah. I I, I think through each stage, I've always liked to work at baseball. Like that's never been a challenge for me. So I thought when I got to college, I had a little bit more free time so I could dedicate more time to baseball. When I got to my leagues, well, you don't have to wake up to go to school. So <laughs> then it would be your fault if you don't get to the field early <laughs> because all you have is time. Right. So, you know, and then when you get to the big leagues, you just have all the resources with video work and cages all over the place, you know. So I, I felt like when... I get those at bats and I've kind of run through the league a couple of times. You know, you, you face, you know, Smoltz and Randy Johnson and all the best guys. And you feel like, okay, not that they're easy to face, but like, I can compete with these guys. They're great. They're going to get me out more than I'm going to, I'm going to be successful, but I know I can compete with them. And then I think you hone in on like, for me, I, I understood that I could hit a ball inside, maybe two balls inside of the black. I could hit that ball hard and keep it fair. mm-hmm. So I tended to be a little closer to the plate because I did not hit the ball on that outside corner black with the same authority. So, you know, you manipulate what you understand. And, um, and I think I, I started understanding much better what my strengths were, what the other teams were doing. And I think it was much more individual homework. I think we're so inundated with data now that there's almost like this avalanche of stuff thrown at you. So if you're not thinking this way, it's, it's wrong. So I, I think that helped me. I think mentally it helped me maybe surpass people that I think physically might've been a little bit more gifted.
0: And we're also building up some of the fuel that you had throughout your career. So like you mentioned, I mean, you're not going to have the cancer define you and you want to get the playing time and you want to prove yourself in the big leagues. And then there's also, I, I read at one point when I'm going back through uh, through the Rolodex of, of Michael's career, at one point you're fueled about, the downside of a career for players. Is that true? Like where, you know, bat speed and, and just aging curve. And this kind of ties into analytics too, where some guys definitely use that as fuel. I mean, you look back to the last season where the giants San Francisco giants are really good. They had some, quite a few players that were, you know, in their mid thirties. So they're considered grandparents in baseball. <laughs> <laughs> did, did that uh, affect you at some point in your career where you were like, screw this, I can hit just as well at age X.
2: Absolutely. You know, and I think, uh, that's what, I, when we said earlier, the, the gift of failure almost, you know, like I remember after my freshman year in college, I had a great year. I was named the freshman All-American and I thought I was the coolest guy in town. And I went to play summer ball the first time with a wood bat and I was terrible.
0: <laughs> you know?
2: And that, mo- that literally motivated me because I said, well, it's my freshman year of fluke. You know, so oh, 05 was the year I really struggled. Yeah. You know, I got off to a slow start. I just, I just felt like, I just never clicked. I never connected. And, and looking back, when we talk about analytics, I would have loved to have known exit velocity and barrel rate, barrel rate percentage because I look back at like the splits and I hit I, I hit over three hundred in July and I couldn't have told you I hit two hundred in July because I was always looking at the big picture. I was so I'm hitting two twenty. What is this? Two ten? This is terrible. So I think I changed my stance a lot. I was searching for that. I don't know that. That quick fix and it's not there, you know. And I think you learn that it's part of the grind. But yeah, you start hearing, oh, um, you know, in 2005 he's, you know, 31. It's definitely on the way down. So what I really did going into those sixties, and now I get traded to the Red Sox. So
1: there's but, a whole yeah. different
2: thing. You know, it, they it, it's not really, hey, this guy was good for us for five years. You know, this is what have you done for me lately? We don't right. care. And I remember uh, Terry Pendleton. He was actually coaching on Bobby Cox staff with the Braves and it was September of 05. And he came up to me and he said, if you play this game long enough, you're always going to have that one year that's just going to and nothing's going to go right. He goes, you got to bank on the other years. So I said, man, that was my seventh year in the league. I go, am I really the player that had the, this one down year or am I or am I the player that had six good consistent seasons? So That always stuck in my head, you know, and and, uh, obviously it was important for me to get off to a good start in Boston because it it was normal. They had Kevin Euclid who played third, maybe play some first, and they signed J.T. Snow. Like, you know, you're not dumb. You know, going into camp, if I didn't pan out, Euclid can play third, J.T. Snow can play first. So I had a decent spring, and then I I got off to a hot start, and I don't know, it, it held me exhale a little bit, you know, because there is doubt you know, there is doubt all the time when you struggle, you know, you, you don't know how it's going to pan out, but after I kind of felt things going and you look into a little bit of the numbers and I look back and I was like, I think 05 was the year I struck out the least, you know, how, how weird is that? Is that yeah. that I was pacing balls and I was putting balls and play weekly, you know? So, you know, it would make sense to me if I struck out 150 times, like I never struck out hundred times in my whole career, if 05, I struck out 150 and I'd be like, wow, I was being dominated. So, I tried to take little morsels of, of information and kind of trick yourself. You know, you gotta, you have to find something to motivate you, but definitely I think people predicting that this is the down point of your career is definitely a, a big motivator for me. And I think you enjoy it that much more. If you can prove some of those people wrong.
1: Yeah. You didn't strike out a lot in 2005. You got to hit them where they ain't though, Mike. And it, yeah. it, it proved though that you were right. You were the guy that had six consistent seasons versus the guy that had that one bad year and you were done because 2006, as you mentioned, you got off to a really strong start, but 2007 was really incredible for you with the Red Sox. Why?
2: I just felt like, you know, I felt like that year, things clicked for me for almost six months. You know, <laughs> there's other years where you're feeling good for two months. Then you have a month where you're trying to ride the wave and then you're pretty good. And then at the end, your numbers are okay. And 2007, I I don't know. I, I clicked with Dave Magadan, who was our hitting coach. It was his first year in Boston. Yep. Um, he was not a mechanical guy. He was a psychologist. Okay understood what it had what it takes to be a big leaguer and I think that helped me a lot and I don't know I just you got off hot I, I I I just felt good the whole year too I think that's a big deal you know when you don't have those aches and pains that sometimes you know linger in and I was in an ideal situation I mean I didn't know it at the time but Pedroia ends up being rookie of the year. He's an on-base machine. He's leading off. We didn't know Yuclid was going to turn into being such a dominant player because he really had a three-year stretch, which is probably top ten in the league at that time. He was hitting second. You got David hitting third, Manny hitting fourth. So, like, the opportunities were endless for me, and but you still have to come through, you know? So And I felt like that year, the greatest thing that ever happened was I tell David Ortiz, I I have to give him a little bit of my contract because in 06 (laughs) he hits 54 home runs, I think.
1: He doesn't need it. He yeah, doesn't he, need
2: well, yeah, any no, of your cover. Buy, buy me a couple dinners. <laughs> I think he hits like 54 home runs in 06. And in 07, he hits like 33, but he hits like 55 doubles. So I'm thinking, I mean, if you just look at it, if there's a runner on first, especially with the monster, and he hits a double off the left field wall, no one's scoring from first off that wall. So it's second and third. Manny's coming up. Well, who do you want to face? Manny Ramirez or Mike Lowell? <laughs> I'm getting Manny for all day. So yeah. you're feeling good and then they put you in those situations, like you feel like you're invincible.
1: Yeah.
2: And just like they had to come to me so many times. And when your swing's in sync, I just felt like that year everything was going good. And 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 honestly, the postseason was my most rewarding part because i was like what a shame if i had such a good regular season and then you can't show up in the postseason like that that would
0: really be a i don't know that would be a letdown yeah 2007 worked out well very well <laughs> it, it, it really all, yeah. all was came a good together one. yeah that was a great one so we're, we're hearing some good names too as we're going through the life and the playing career um i'm wondering about major league networking and friendships So what was it like as a player? And then now like are the guys that you played with still some of your best friends? Is it more like I don't get to speak with them or see them that frequently, but when I do it's like old times and obviously it's different for everyone, but I'm just curious about what that relationship is like once you're far enough removed from the game. I'm sure it's different with everyone. I'm sure there's some guys that are like, yeah, I don't keep in touch with anyone. And then <laughs> there's some that are like, that's my whole world because, you know, I went from basically a baby through, you know, 35 years old and that's the only people that I knew. So I hang out with them.
2: Uh, a big factor, you know, I think, you know, it, as you play with guys, especially several years over, you kind of understand what they do. And if they're similar in your preparation, the age and everything really doesn't matter. Excuse me. Like for me,
1: that's true. Yeah.
2: I, I, I clicked with Pedroia. Like I got 10 years on Pedroia. And since day one, like we'd sit next to each other. We were playing cribbage on the plane all the time. It was just, I love that he loved getting there early. And, uh, you know, I would rag on him. I said, you know, when I first met Pedroia, he was a little bit overweight. He was coming off a knee surgery. I said, I didn't know the Red Sox drafted short, fat people in the second <laughs> round, you know? And then, you know, he comes in, he's like, who's got a welding mask? Because I'm hitting, lasers all over. I said, who is this guy, you know, but he came to play every day. And I really, I really liked guys like that. But um, the Marlins was very unique because we were a a lot of young guys that kind of made our bones together. So that was really cool. And I would say, you know, guys like, well, easily Millar, but it was Millar, Cliffy, um, Josh Beckett, you know, those were guys that obviously I still stay in touch with now. Mike Redmond is hands down from the Marlins group, the guy I've stayed in touch with the most. Like we just clicked and it helps when your wives like each other and his kids are kind of my kids ages. So we vacationed together and all that helps. And he's just a guy that, I don't know, I appreciate guys like he was an undrafted free agent. And after he was drafted by the Marlins to back up Charles Johnson, who was the first round pick. You know, so they wanted a smart guy who was, you know, I don't know someone who understood the game and then i think the organization actually told him after ball, why don't you become a manager he's like nah, i want to stick this out a little bit more and he plays 14 years in the big leagues <laughs> so i i those guys I, I i just really appreciate and with the red Sox, you know it's david and and Pedroia. obviously i see david a lot because i was coaching his son when he was in high school i was helping out and but it was alex cora by far you know uh, we just had we had a connection you know we, we would work out Um, we tried to work out two out of every three days on the road. We would go with the strength coach. And, you know, he was, he was one guy that I never saw a guy who didn't play every day, command the respect that he did. Like he could tell Manny Ramirez, Hey, you got to show up today. You got to show up to work out. We're not accepting that you're not. And Manny would do it. And people that know Manny, Manny's not going to do anything. He doesn't want to do Yeah. You know? So, you know, guys like that, it's easy. For me, it was easy to flock to them because They're good baseball players, but I think they're better people.
1: Is that how Pedroia got laser show? Did he seriously come into the clubhouse and say he needed a welder's mask?
2: Alana, we could have a whole episode on Pedroia. He's hitting, when he gets called up in 06, he's hitting like a buck 80. (laughs) A.J. Burnett's on the mound for the Blue Jays now at this time. And, you know, A.J. Burnett, I played with him for five years. I love him. He throws 96, 97 at that time yes yeah, so he pumps a heater and petrol goes deep so now he boosted his average to 192 i'm like you still saying <laughs> you no know? he comes into the dugout and he goes what? and he goes 97 in 197 out. and i'm like who is this guy <laughs> so he didn't need cheerleaders you know he was the confidence was always there so um it was just like I don't know. He'd be like, game one of the World Series. He's like, does Jeff Francis know what's going to happen to him first at bat? he? Wow. And I'm like, what? Boom. He goes they deep.
1: Like, yeah. yeah.
2: So, you know, it was it was things like that. You know, I heard in game three, he wasn't allowed in the course field. You know, they were like, hey. He goes, yeah, Dustin Pedroia. He goes, can you, can you give me your credential? And he's like, I don't have my credential, but I'm, I'm a second baseman. My name's Dustin Pedroia. And he's like, well, we don't know who you are. He goes, well, ask Jeff Francis if he knows who I am. So I'm like, all right that works <laughs> so Maybe he was, a, he he
0: was talking smack i was just gonna say yes, he, all the time not just internal to others too oh, to yeah. Players. yeah but he had
1: the numbers to back it up that's the thing i mean if you yes. have the production to back up the mouth then so be it you know there's a lot right. of guys that talk a lot of junk that are not even in the league anymore dustin pedroia is one guy that could could uh, talk the talk because he walked the walk speaking of uh Taking a ball out on the first pitch. When you, at the end of the, or 2010, when you said you were going to retire, you go there and you you step into the box to a standing ovation on August 3rd when you returned to Boston and you hit a two run jack on the first pitch you saw. Take me through your mentality in that moment when you stepped into the box.
2: Well, Alana, I, you know, I tell, I always tell my wife, you know, my career felt like it went so fast and 2010, felt like it was 10 years in itself, you know? and And I realized there that, I could never be a platoon player because I was bored out of my mind. And it it was a really frustrating year for me because I had had my first hip surgery and I just knew that, you know, it was my right hip. So all my, the torque and my power was, I felt like I was playing with 70% of my my Mm. bullets. You know, and I'd take batting practice and I would hit a ball, I'm like, ooh, got that one good. And it hits like the base of the wall. I was like, oh my God, I got no chance. So. You know, I went off and on on the DL. You know, we had signed Adrian Beltre, who actually I played against since A-ball. I love him. He's an unbelievable person. And I had no issues with them signing them, him because the Red Sox are here to make the team better. You know, that, that didn't bother me. It just, it got to the point where I knew I was, I was going to retire at the end of that year because just in spring training, like I had to get in the hot tub for 20 minutes, stretch, and all just to get ready to warm up.
1: Right. I was like, this
2: is, and then not to feel hundred percent. If you told me it took all that and I feel hundred percent, that's great. But you know, you're taking anti-inflammatories and then you're taking Advil after batting practice and then you're trying to take anti-inflammatories to calm it down before you go to sleep. And I was like, it's just not working. You know, I did, you know, so it, it got to the point where that, that particular day I did a rehab assignment with the AAA team and I actually was swinging the bat really well. And I didn't know if I was ever going to be put on the active roster again, you know, mm. things can happen. They, you know, that phantom DL is something that sometimes works, you know? Um, but they, you know, I came in and that's where, I don't know if it's something I said down the road or the way I played, but I, I had my whole career, such a good relationship with the Red Sox fans, you know, and it was really overwhelming. I was like, wow. I don't, it was like the second inning or the first inning. I didn't know, like, are they think I'm going to die or something? No, they're like gone. <laughs> So it was really, it was really cool that I got such a great ovation. And yeah, the icing on the cake was the first pitch I saw. I was like, well, I'm looking heater in and I got a heater in and I didn't miss it. So that trot around the bases, I, I looked at the highlights and I'm like, man, I'm running slow around the base. I felt like I was <laughs> like, It
1: hurts. It hurts. Oh my God, it hurts. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, but it was, a, you know, a really, a really special moment. You know, I think it was just an understanding of, I don't know, I, I, I feel like where I can hang my hat is. I felt like I was always prepared to play. That's what I, I really believe. I was always prepared to play that, that given day. And I know I gave hundred percent. And if hundred percent for me is a 280 career hitter, well, that's all I had because, because I felt like I left it all on the table and I, I could hang my hat on that. And it really bothered me when health wise, I didn't have everything I was used to for the 12 years prior. Mm-hmm. And that's when for me, I, you t- we talked about bats and everything, I really felt like those last three years, 07, 08, and 09, I felt like I understood better than ever what I was doing at the plate. Mm-hmm. You know, and I banged up in 08. I think I hit 290. And in 09, I, I mean, I was seeing the stars with my hip grinding on, and I still hit well, you know. So I, that's the only – I mean, I wouldn't call it a regret, but the only thing was I think I could have played three or four more years, you know, and, and be a contributing player. But it all worked out. You know, I wouldn't,
0: I wouldn't trade it for anything.
1: Three World Series rings, not bad. exactly.
0: Three World Series rings. Apparently what the the male brain takes a while to develop. I've been told that at times. No
1: comment, no comment. There you go, (laughs) exactly.
0: So I know many listening understand. Hey, Mikey, awesome. We appreciate it. Good to get the story down too and just hear all about the path.
1: Hang on, I want one one more question real quick. Okay. Who's your MVP and why? 2022. American League? Yes.
2: Oh, for me, it's Aaron Judge. I, mean, I love Otani, and I actually think he's a better pitcher um, than what he was last year. I just feel like if you're on the verge of carrying a team on your back, and you have a chance at history, and that's not good enough to win the MVP, then you might as well give it to Otani for the next eight years, because he could be a that mediocre place. pitcher and a mediocre hitter, and no one's going to do what he does anyways. Correct. So I, I, for me, it's Aaron
1: Judge. You're here.
0: A lot to like there, Alana. Give me one thing that really stood out from well, I mean, one of many, but what did you learn from there?
1: I think the biggest thing is a common thread between all professional athletes that the longer they go in their career, in terms of their longevity, they figure out things mechanically that can probably extend their career, but their body tells them otherwise. Their body says, you know what? You're done. Even if your mind is ready, even if you figure things out you tweak things over and over and over and again, and you think you can still go, your mind will tell you when you can keep going, but your body will tell you when you're done.
0: Yeah, that's a great call. And a lot of times your mental component is not on the same track as the physical one, right? It's like, I wish my brain was here because I would have done this so differently. But now I feel like I know everything. And it's like, all right, well, then go into broadcasting. (laughs) (laughs) That's my suggestion, going to broadcasting. That's an easy
1: transition, no doubt. And it's funny, too, because a lot of our, you know, friends and, and former players that we talk to uh, they do make that transition we say that they're switching to the dark side and they realize that as, as much as we know that we can't do what they do when they played it's not as easy as it looks coming on this side of the mic but it's been fun and Michael is a testament to uh just how you know how long he played how hard he played and how uh, much fun he had doing it and great guy I mean you, you tell by the interview he's just a great guy
0: Oh, yeah. It, that's exactly the way he talks, is, is how you'd, you know, grab a beer with him or get dinner or whatever. So we, we got a, a quick 30 second uh, this week in baseball because we never let you down on that one. On October 8, 1956, Don Larson pitching the only perfect game in World Series history, two nothing dub over the Brooklyn Dodgers at the time. And he was with the New York Yankees. So, uh, wait. Alana, did I read that right? October 8th?
1: You they did. You were playing
0: the World Series?
1: You did. October 8th, many moons ago. And by the way, that is basically when game two of this year's AL and NL wild card will be happening, Scotty Braun. So the <laughs> wild card round this season begins on October 7th when Don Larson threw the perfect game. We're just barely getting into the division series. The division series starts on October 11th and goes through the 17th. The league championship goes through October 26th. And just for your Halloween trick-or-treating pleasure, World Series Game 3 is on Halloween, which is obviously October 31st. The World Series, if necessary, to have a Game 7 would wrap up on November 5th. I hope we are in warm weather, weather cities, my friend.
0: And if not, it better have a roof. (laughs) I
1: know. I'm thinking Brewers Astros. Let's go.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) If we're in Milwaukee, you better have a lid, right? Like (laughs) uh, no comment on New York and some of the other spots that don't. But (laughs) (laughs) the lounge is uh, about to close and it's always warm and toasty in here. But happy October. Happy playoff season, everyone. See you soon. The Legends Lounge podcast is brought to you by Major League Alumni Marketing. Hit us with questions or comments at Legends Lounge at MLBPAA.com. Check out our memorabilia at MLAMAuthentics.com. Later, Legends. Baseball Legends Lounge is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.